And turn with me, if you will, again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. I did not prepare a Father's Day message this morning, and the Lord took care of that for us with our study in 2 Kings chapter 2. Thank you, brother. The passing of the mantle from Elijah to Elisha. I was thinking about it, and I mentioned this morning, this is the fourth year um, since Dad went to be with the Lord in 2019 and every father's day is is a time of reflection and i i think back on my father and the legacy that he passed down and it was interesting to me if any man had an excuse for not being what a father ought to be it was my dad um the lord saved him in his 20s but that was after his own father died of a heart attack when he was 5 or 6 years old so my father was was essentially raised without a father, and yet the legacy that he passed on to me and my siblings was study the word. When the Lord saved him, um, he became a man of God's word and began to study. And you know what happens when a man studies God's word? He becomes a good father. You read uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I was pondering this verse this morning. Paul tells Timothy, who, by the way, was essentially raised by his mother and grandmother. He said, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I would encourage you brothers this morning that have children and those of you that aspire to have some some someday, fatherhood is a good work for which scripture equips us. Um, I would encourage you this morning, and this will be the end of my Father's Day message, be a man of God's word if you want to be a good father. Um, Let's ask the Lord to lead us as we dig into our study in Revelation 11. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time that we have together. We thank you for your word. We ask again, Father, that you would illuminate it, that you would um, help us as we study this morning. Father, that you would um, focus our thoughts and our attention on you. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, I ask now that that even now, Lord, you would prepare our hearts. Father, that we would not take it lightly, but that we would, um, Father, rejoice in what you have done on our behalf, and our lives would reflect, reflect the gratitude that we have because of that. We ask for your help this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 11, just to give a quick background of where we are, we're studying the two witnesses, and the message of our of our attention this morning is dead in the streets. We'll, we'll pick up in verse 11, but we're continuing to look at scenes or pictures in the interlude between the six and seven trumpets in chapter 11, and I've, I've used this analogy several times, but just to remind you that The book of Revelation is is a continuation of the same thoughts, and they take, John takes us in this this, um, photo album, if you will, of the revelation of Jesus Christ from from one scene to the next, but it's communicating similar or like truth. And when we started out in Revelation chapter 11 with the command to John to rise and measure He's given a command to rise and measure the temple or the dwelling place of God. And scripture very clearly tells us that the dwelling place of God is his people via the spirit of God indwelling us. And then it seems like there's a shift in in picture, but it's a continuation of the same thought. We go from verses one and two into verse three, where the Lord Jesus says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees 
and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. We talked a great deal about miracles and the purpose of miracles in Scripture, was, which was to validate the messenger. This morning, as we studied in 2 Kings chapter 2, we find as Elijah is passing the mantle to Elisha, God validates the fact that Elisha is now the prophet of Israel. And how did he do that? As Elisha was leaving Elijah, he's caught up by a chariot. And there were witnesses there that saw that. Elisha strikes the water with his mantle, and what happens? The water parts, and he comes back to those prophets that were waiting on the other side. Well, what did God do there? He validated the fact that Elisha was taking Elijah's place as a prophet of God in Israel. The purposes of miracles is to validate the message. The reason that we don't perform miracles today is, guess what? The message has been validated. I don't need to go around performing miracles to validate the mind of God. We have it contained right here. God's word is complete. It is for the church now to witness to God's word. The two witnesses are the prophesying bride of Christ. And we talked about the word in the Greek to prophesy means to declare the mind of God. The question for the church that we need to ponder is, is God's mind made clear in his word? The answer to that is yes. We need only to declare God's word. That's what we're called to do. The two witnesses are declaring the mind of God. And God has granted his church and his bride the power and authority through his regenerating and indwelling spirit to faithfully proclaim the mind of God. We looked last week that we are the light of the world. The picture of the light coming from the two lampstands is the illumination of the, of the spirit of God through the church into a dark world. We do this, by the way, by keeping in step with the spirit. And we looked at that last week. How does the church keep in step with the spirit of God? The illustration that Paul uses is, is being yoked to the Spirit of God, where we are walking in tandem with him. We're not going our own way. The essence of the Christian life who is submitted to the ruling of the Spirit of God is not that he or she can do miracles. You know what? The proof of the Spirit of God's indwelling, that believer, submission, obedience, the Spirit of God or the Christian who is filled with the Spirit of God and who is walking in step with the Spirit of God is in obedience. We saw that with the Lord Jesus, didn't, didn't we? He was filled with the Spirit of God in perfect submission. And the Spirit of God often does things that don't make sense. Remember, Jesus, after he was baptized, is a demonstration of obedience, not because he needed to be washed. What did, what, what did the Scripture say? The Spirit led him into the wilderness. Now, in what, in, in what planet does that make sense to just go into the wilderness for 40 days? And that's where the Lord Jesus went. And we know the rest of the, the picture there. But walking or keeping in step with the Spirit of God is a life of obedience. The church's strength is not readily evident. Scripture says God has chosen the foolish and the weak to confound those who are mighty and wise. Progress for the church may seem slow, and that can be discouraging for us. But we need not be discouraged by ministry in the small things. We looked at Zechariah chapter 4 in the, in the picture of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah building, rebuilding the temple one stone at a time with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. They were reminded that the Spirit of God would rebuild the temple. And then lastly, we looked last week that God sees and knows his sheep. The two witnesses are proclaiming the mind of God before or in the presence of God. A, 
a picture of God's omniscience and also that we're living out this life in, in front of the courtroom of heaven. The two witnesses, the purpose of the two witnesses, by the way, is, is to remind us that the establishment of truth comes by what? Two witnesses. In Matthew, when we have, if we have ought against the brother and they will not hear us, what are we to do? We're, we're to take a witness to establish the facts. In the Old Testament, when God had some 16 sins that he declared were capital crimes, those crimes are to be carried out or the execution because of those crimes is to be carried out on the establishment of truth by two witnesses. The picture of the two witnesses is not that these are distinct prophets that will come back in the future. The picture of these witnesses is, is that God is establishing through the preaching of the word a guilty verdict on humanity. And it's not popular. Humanity does not want to hear that they stand guilty before God unless they repent and turn from their sin. And as we read this morning in our scripture passage, we see the outcome of this. Uh, the world seemingly uh, or celebrates what is the seeming demise of the church because they have been tormented. The picture of that torment that the world experiences is the proclamation of the truth. It grates in the ears of the world. And we wrestle with this because we don't like to be the bearer of bad tidings, do we? You don't get popular by telling people what they don't want to hear. But God has called us to declare the truth. That is the mission of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no good news unless first the bad news is. The... To summarize where we are, um, I highly recommend this. If you're studying through the book of Revelation, J.K. Beale is, a, is an excellent um, commentary on the book of Revelation. He says this, quote, the lampstands in the tabernacle and the temple were in the presence of God. And the light that emanated from, from them apparently represented the presence of God. Likewise, the lamps on the lampstand in Zechariah chapter 4, 2 through 5, are interpreted as representing God's presence or his spirit, which was to empower Israel to finish rebuilding the temple, despite resistance. So now the new Israel, the church, as God's spiritual temple on earth, is to draw its power from the spirit the divine presence before God's throne and its drive to stand against the world. This continues the theme from chapter 11, 1 through 3 of God's establishment of his presence among his end-time community as his sanctuary, which is aimed to ensure the effectiveness of his prophetic witness. The temple, notice this, the temple can be harmed externally, but not internally. And this theme is continued by the portrayal of the witnessing church as a temple that is vulnerable to the beast's attack, but is ultimately immune to any fatal consequences of the attack. So we pick up in verse 7, and there's a, a decided shift in emphasis. Verse 7, and when they, that is the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. That's an interesting verse. So the question that comes to mind as we think about the context of time here is, when is this? Well, the answer to that question is this is in God's timing. But notice this. God measures the church. Have you ever done a construction project at home, got out your tape measure, measured. My, my dad had a saying, measure twice, cut once. You ever heard that before? Why? Have you ever measured once, cut, and realized you came up short? The picture in verses one and two of God's command to John to measure the temple, God has specifically designed and decreed what the church's mission and parameters are there is no coming up short. The church will accomplish what God has called it to do. Remember what he told Peter. Peter, upon this rock, meaning Christ, will I build the church. And what? The gates of hell will defeat it? No. The gates of hell will not prevail. The church's mission will be completed. 
So this is the picture in verse 7 of the church having completed its mission. So it says, and when they, the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the testimony meaning the giving of the witness, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, conquer them, or kill them. And I believe as I study this, that this is a picture of the church just prior to the Lord's coming. Well, why do I say that? If you look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, this is what the Lord Jesus tells his disciples. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, preached, or heralded throughout the whole earth as a testimony. The word testimony in the Greek means martyrion. We get the word martyr from that. But the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony or a witness unto all nations. And then what happens? Then the end comes. And then the end will come. The church's responsibility is not to guess the date. That's not our business. The church has a responsibility to witness the mind of God as declared in his word. That's our business. And then the end will come. What is that that um, mission that Christ gave the church? Well, just before his departure in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be what? My witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The church's mission, its calling, is to declare the mind of God to the ends of the earth, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This this, uh, passage, as we study verses 5 and 6, show us that the church is invincible while completing God's mission. That's the point of verses 5 and 6. And it's shown in the, the imagery, the symbolism of the prophets and the miracles that they carried out. They show us that the church is invincible while completing the mission that God has given to it. I was thinking about Thomas Jonathan Jackson this week, who we might refer to as Stonewall. And um, one of the statements that, that he made, a quote that has always stuck in my head, is this, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in the battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. Coincidentally, he died in bed from friendly fire, but he was resolved to do what God had called him to do without worrying about dying. Verse 7 again, the beast rises from the bottomless pit and will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So the church has finished its testimony. then what? Well, we have a picture here that is extremely troubling to the church. You say, well, why is it troubling? Because it's a parallel picture of Daniel chapter 7, and we'll read that in just a minute. But Daniel's response as he's given the vision of the beast is that it troubles him greatly. And and the result of that is Daniel chapter 9. And I'm not going to read Daniel chapter 9, but I would encourage you, pick up God's word, read Daniel chapter 9, because Daniel chapter 9 is what the church should be praying right now. But we see the picture of the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, and there's much conjecture about what the beast is or who the beast is. I will elaborate more on this shortly and build a biblical case for who or what the beast is. But I want to give you just the introduction here tonight, today of that, because this is the first time in our study in Revelation 11 now where the beast is mentioned. We'll see the beast mentioned in Revelation 12, 13, and 17, and a lot more detail given there. But but know this, the word beast in the Greek is therion, and it means a wild beast or a brute, an animal. And the picture, the imagery here is vivid. And here we find that the beast is first introduced in our study in the book of Revelation as the antagonist of the church. What does scripture tell us about the beast? Well, the nature of the beast is revealed here 
by John as he's declaring this revelation of Jesus Christ. Where is the beast from? The pit. So he has good intentions, right? No. Scripture tells us much about the nature and the character of this beast by where he comes from. When we meet new people, one of the first things we do is we say, well, where are you from? Our our history, where we are sourced from, tells a lot about who we are, doesn't it? Well, the beast is from the pit. He is sourced or empowered from the pit of hell. And notice that he makes war on the saints. And the scripture says he conquers and kills them. Now, I've said many times in our study of the book of Revelation, things are not what they seem to be, are they? And so there is a period here where he seems to have the upper hand. He seems to have completed his diabolical desire to destroy the church. So much so that as we look further in Revelation 11, they're going to rejoice. They're going to celebrate. They're going to give each other gifts. It's like Christmas. The party is on because the church's voice is dead. Church is gone. But things are not what they seem to be. But he makes war on the saints. And the beast is elaborated on Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 17. He is empowered by the dragon, or that is Satan. And notice that the whole earth marvels and worships the beast. And the message of the beast is that he blasphemes God and the saints. And much talk is is given about the mark of the beast, which we will get to in Revelation chapter 13. But I want you to notice that there is a parallel that Revelation is establishing here. And Satan is the great imitator or the hijacker, if you will, of God. The mark of the beast, by the way, just to give you just a little hint of what we'll talk about when we get to Revelation 13. We've labored from Revelation 1 to 11 to establish the seal or the mark of God on the saints. What is that? It is the indwelling spirit of God that separates out the people of God. Lots of talk about the mark of the beast. It's very simple, though, guys. It is the mark of ownership. The child of God does not belong to the beast and cannot. But we notice as we look in Revelation chapter 17 that those who dwell on the earth, those whose residence or citizenship is not in glory, will worship the beast. But I want you to see that this is the very beast that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7. So if you'll turn there with me, I want to go through that quickly. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts, or four great beasts, came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, I had in in, in this horn... And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, and I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, you say, well, why was Daniel disheartened by what he saw? Because we see these four beasts rising out of the sea, the last one being scarier than the first three. And there's some pretty powerful imagery that would frighten anybody. But the reality of it was, is that God is sovereign over those beasts. Earthly kingdoms will rise up and dominion is given to them. But I want you to see Daniel points out here in this vision that they are under the sovereign hand of the Ancient of Days, who is seated on the throne. He is sovereign over every earthly kingdom. And then another encouraging sight in Daniel's vision is the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and he is victorious over the fourth beast. And the nature of his kingdom, that is the Son of God, is, is it's eternal. Unlike the earthly kingdoms that rise up and fall, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. And I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. All good news again, right? Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron, claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which the three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, it seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Does this sound familiar to Revelation 11? Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom. So remember, this is spiritual imagery that is that is um, given to to, uh, relay truth. These four beasts are kingdoms that he's talking about here. And he says, as he's interpreting, the angel is interpreting this for Daniel. Um, He shall speak, verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of his kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Daniel says in verse 28, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. What was alarming to Daniel? The picture here is that God is victorious, finally and totally over his enemies. I want you to see in verses 17 through 18, there are dueling kingdoms here. While the kingdoms of this world rise and fall and grow, and one succeeds another, there is another kingdom that is growing, that is received and possessed by the saints of the Most High, that is forever, forever, and ever. And Daniel's given details concerning the fourth beast, verse 19, and this parallels exactly with what we're studying in Revelation chapter 11. 
This beast is exceedingly powerful and a terrifying kingdom. He speaks great things against God. The horn of the beast makes war with the saints. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, it is identified as the saints. In Revelation 11, the two witnesses are called out. But I want you to see it's the same thing. The two witnesses are the saints, are the church, are the bride of Christ. But there's a, a prevailing over them. The fourth beast exercises power over the whole earth, tramples it, and breaks it in pieces. He speaks out against God. He targets the church. The idea of wearing out means to oppress and harass. He will think to change times and laws, and the saints will be given into his hand for a short period of time, three and a half years. And then in verse 26 and 27 of Daniel 7, the court of heaven will judge the beast who will be consumed and destroyed, and the saints will reign with Christ. So why is Daniel troubled? Well, back to Revelation 11, verse 7. The beast will make war on them and conquer and kill them. There are parallel statements that we see in the book of Revelation regarding the making of war on the saints. And I want you to understand something. Um, I do not have a persecution complex. As I'm about to tell you what I'm about to tell you, I want you to understand, I do not look forward in any way to suffering. Um, I don't embrace that. And I say that in the flesh. But I want you to see something. Scripture paints a much different picture for the saints of God than what is commonly taught in most theological circles. The beast will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the, with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 13, 7. Also, it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer it for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 19, 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. That is the church or the bride. So the question for you this morning, as you consider and ponder these things, is this making war a one-time future event that will take place in a valley in the Middle East at some geographical location, as we are commonly taught, or is this the experience of the bride in its totality pictured here? I want to ask you this this morning. How long has the church been persecuted and martyred? How long? What did the Lord Jesus say to the church in Smyrna and Pergamos in Revelation chapter 2? And I would ask you this, how many prominent believers, let's include the apostles in that question, have finished their race and been killed for their testimony? See, when we relegate the spiritual battle that the church is in to a future event, what does that do for the church today? Saints, you, you're not in a fight now. Sit back, relax. That fight's in the future. And when we see armies making dust in the Middle East and, and that war is going to take place over there, what is happening to the church here? Complacent. She's ill-prepared. I want to show you from Scripture that we are in a battle now, right now. Philippians 2, regarding finishing the race, Paul says this in Philippians 2, 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights, hint, lampstand in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. 
Look at verse 17 of Philippians 2. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. How was Paul killed? Well, history and tradition tells us that he was beheaded by Rome. Did he finish his race? Yes. He, and I believe Paul is the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 11.32. Hebrews 11 is the chapter regarding the heroes of the faith. Listen to what it says in verse 32. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Think, man, look at what they accomplished. Then listen to this, verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, all of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these things, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. But since uh, God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What is what is he talking about there? Those who have suffered martyrdom have not yet been made perfect. Well, what is he referring to? Well, remember Revelation 6, 11, The saints under the altar, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. He's talking about the the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in which our bodies will be resurrected and glorified and we will be, our redemption will be made complete. But he said that is holding off until the rest of us are made perfect. Therefore, look at verse 12 of Hebrews 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of what? Witnesses, those giving testimony, martyrs, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our experience in the United States living under the Christian-friendly government that we have for so many, so many years, 200-plus, has very much sheltered the American church from the reality of what the church has experienced since the Lord Jesus said, go and witness to the, to the ends of the earth. I want I want scripture to overwhelm you with the weight of this truth this morning. I'm going to give you several references if you want to jot them down so that you can study them later. But I want you to see something here. Scripture is honest with the reality of what the church has gone through since the very beginning until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can go and we can say, well, when did persecution begin? I could make the argument to you that it began just outside of the Garden of Eden. Who? About Abel. God said to Abel, sacrifice a perfect lamb. Cain said, I'm going to sacrifice what I think will make me happy. I'm going to substitute the works of my hands for that lamb. And he became jealous of Cain. And what happened to Cain? Or to Abel? He killed him. It's the first mention of martyrdom in scripture. But I want you to see this. Um, Even with the early church, Paul is is converted in Acts chapter 9, verse 16. This is what the Lord Jesus says to Ananias when he says, go talk to Paul. I want you to to show yourself to Paul. And Ananias is like, "Mm, 
He's a bad dude. He's been destroying the church. I really don't want to talk to him. And the Lord says to Ananias, he says, I will show him, Paul, Acts 9, 16, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, I'm going to give you about a dozen verses. Jot them down, please, if you have something to write with. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in what? Our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, but God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If Paul preached that message in modern-day America, what would happen? Most places would laugh him out. Rejoice in our sufferings. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. How do we know that we belong to the Lord Jesus? We're led by his Spirit. We're obedient to him. For you, if you for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, and we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 1.5 For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Philippians 1.29 for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also, what? Suffer for his sake. Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. You're seeing a theme here? 1 Thessalonians 2.14, for you brothers become became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The picture here should be clear for us. The church has been suffering since its inception. Yeah, but I don't want to go through that. It's not our call, by the way. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. Read that one. First Thessalonians, um, excuse me, Second Thessalonians 1.5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you, what, are also suffering. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but listen, share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul does not tell him how to get around the suffering. And remember, notice what we talked about in 2 Kings 2 this morning. Elisha, when, when Elijah says, I'm leaving, Elisha, what do you want me to leave you? What does Elisha not ask for? Daniel pointed it out. He doesn't ask for an easy time of it. He doesn't ask for a 401k in the bank. He says, to give me what I need to minister. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul talking to Timothy, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You think Paul is telling Timothy what he is going to experience in the ministry? Is he shooting straight with them? <clears throat> These people that are telling us that God wants us to receive health and wealth and prosperity, guess what? They're lying to you. 
That is not God's calling for the church. 2 Timothy 4, 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You say, well, Paul had a bit of a complex here. He was always talking about suffering. But when we study scripture, it's loud. But he's not the only one. James says in James 5.10, the brother of Jesus, as an example of suffering and patience, brother, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. 1 Peter 2.15, listen to this, for this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is the light being bright. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God... One endures sorrows while suffering, what? Unjustly. It's not fair. Our culture is constantly crying out for justice. Do we have any idea what we are asking when we ask for justice? Do we really want the justice of Almighty God falling on our heads? What what does that mean for us? If God's justice were to fall on our heads, what would we have? Eternity in hell. Peter says you will suffer unjustly. But what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, you deserve that. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Listen, for this, to this, you have been called. Did you catch that? For to this you have been called. God has called you to suffer for doing what is right. Because Christ also suffered. Listen to this. Leaving you an example so that you might what? Follow in his steps. God has ordained that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will follow in his steps. Did he have an easy time of it in his 30 odd years while he was here on earth? It's not why he came. I will tell you this. It is not God's plan for his church, for his people to have an easy time of it while we're here on this earth. That's not his agenda for us. First Peter 5, 8, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing, listen to this, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I said, what did God say to the the two churches in Revelation 2? Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested And for 10 days, you will have tribulation, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What I find noticeably absent in all of these passages is that the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as they're writing scripture, don't say to the church, guys, suffering's coming, but guess what? Don't worry about it. You're going to be raptured out. You're going to be taken out. No, what are they telling the church that they're going to experience suffering for? so that we might be prepared. You say, but that was for the early church under Rome. As I said, we have enjoyed immense isolation here in the United States. In the background of this slide, there is um, a picture of the top 50 countries where right now, today, Christians all over this world are are experiencing life-threatening persecution. It seems odd to us, doesn't it? Why would they be treated so badly there when we are treated so well here? By the way, guys, it's a wake-up call for us. The church is not loved here. If you are willing to stand up and speak the truth, you are going to be isolated by our, our, our culture. We call it canceling in today's nomenclature. But there are people 
all over the world that are getting far worse than canceled. Canceled is getting off easy. Sudan, Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, Nigeria, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, North Korea. If you, and you can go on and find this online very easily, Open Doors International tracks a lot of this, and I don't know how they track it. My, my, I would venture to say that what they track is far understated from the reality. No disrespect to my brothers and sisters that believe that, but here's my question for you. If the enemy of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ can convince the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that the battle is not right now, right under our noses, but it's a future time and a future place far, far away, not here, then what do we do? And that's where we get lazy boy Christianity, because that's what we have. But listen to this. North Korea is the number one place in the world for which you will be persecuted as a Christian. The highest levels of persecution ever seen, an all-time high, reflects the increase of arrest of Christians in house churches discovered. Now, why are people having churches in their houses in these places? Because to publicly gather like we do here is a death sentence. House churches being discovered and closed under the new anti-reactionary thought law that's being carried out in North Korea. In Afghanistan, despite its drop in the ranking, persecution remains extreme in Afghanistan. Fewer Afghan Christians were killed for their faith in 2022. Now, why is that? Why are fewer Christians killed for their faith in 2022? Because many have fled or were killed when the Taliban took over. There's fewer Christians there now. So is persecution going down for the church in Afghanistan? Well, Christians are being snuffed out there. Nigeria, Christians continually continue to be brutally attacked in northern Nigeria, Boko Haram, Iswap, or the Islamic State of Western African Province, and other armed bandits have conducted devastating raids on Christian communities. The government continues deny, to deny that this is religious persecution. So violations of Christian rights have been carried out with impunity. An estimated 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith last year. 90% of those were from Nigeria alone. And this huge increase of violence in Nigeria and sub-Saharan Africa has caused more Christians to lose their lives in the last five years. Christians killed in 2023 number 80% more than five years ago. In China, the use of digital, digital surveillance technology is spreading, adding to persecution and intimidation. By the way, you think artificial intelligence is going to be used for good in our culture? There is a bridge somewhere dry that I could sell you. Adding to persecution and intimidation, digital tools have become more sophisticated, and so has the Chinese government. Beijing employed censorship and unblinking surveillance to ratchet up control of religious groups, i.e. Christians in China. My point is, is this. In the world all around us, what we're preaching in our country doesn't sell because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is witnessing and, and being martyred for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we experience here is rare. It's not the norm. By the way, as we consider the proliferation of artificial intelligence, I heard this week from an individual's mouth directly, the World Economic For Forum's um, advisor says this, quote, you know, Gutenberg printed the Bible in the middle of the 15th century. The printing press printed as many copies of the Bible as Gutenberg instructed it, but it did not create a single new page. It has no idea of its own about the Bible. Is it good? Is it bad? How to interpret this? How to interpret that? AI can create new ideas. It can even write a new Bible. Throughout history, religions dreamt about having a book written by a superhuman intelligence, by a non-human entity. In a few years, there might be religions that are actually correct. Just think about a religion whose holy book is written by an AI. That could be a reality in a few years. 
you say, ah, oh, no big deal. But listen, when when God's word becomes hate speech, that's what they're talking about, rewriting a correct Bible. We need to be aware. And this is not to frighten us. This is to prepare us. Amen. There is, uh, and the question that, that should come up as we close this morning is, what is the application here for us? And we're only covering one verse. There's a lot more to come on this. But I want you to understand this. The church is now presently testifying and will soon finish its testimony and complete its commission to witness the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the end will come. But what will lead up to the end? The end is prior to the end, the church will finish its testimony. We have to tell the truth. We have to. And that will cost us. Secondly, the church is invincible while fulfilling its mission. The temple can be harmed externally, but not internally. Jesse, can you go to the last slide? The church is invincible while fulfilling its mission. What does that mean? In verses one and two, it talks about measuring the temple, and it talks about the outer temple being trampled by the Gentiles, but the inner temple untouchable. Here's the, here's the reality for the church. The church may be martyred, that is physically attacked, persecuted, hunted down, but they can't touch your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't touch the inner sanctuary. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're untouchable. You say, but it's going to hurt. It may very well. It may very well. But guess what? We win. We've already won. The Spirit of God cannot be forcibly removed from you. He is sovereign. Thirdly, the beast, the great antagonist, that animal, empowered by Satan, will wear out the saints. Scripture's telling us what to expect at the time of the last time. While the church is witnessing and testifying, it has its enemies. The battle is here and now, not in the future, not in a faraway land. And then fourthly, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been suffering, continues to suffer, and will suffer until the Lord Jesus returns. And, and I want to encourage you with this. Not one hair of our heads will fall apart from the divine appointment of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his sovereign will. He is using the suffering of the church to sanctify it, to purify it, to make his bride ready. We think that suffering is pointless. It's not. It has a purpose. Lastly, Christ is now building his everlasting kingdom and will soon put all of his enemies under his dominion. We look forward to that. We rejoice in knowing that. But in the meantime, we need to be aware. We need to tell the truth. How how are we to strengthen each other? Well, God has given us everything we need. You realize that the assembling of ourselves together, strengthening, encouraging, and edifying each other is to help fortify the church against the suffering that she will experience. God has given us the means. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a second. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace that God has given to encourage and strengthen the body of Christ so that she may give a faithful witness. What does the Lord tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? We're to do this as often as we we come together. Why? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is the purpose of the church. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you have provided a lamb. Father, we renounce any effort on our own part to establish our own righteousness. It is apart from the work of the Lord Jesus. But Father, we rest in his finished work this morning. And as we come to the table, we ask that you would cleanse us and wash us. Father, that you would equip us to serve you in this wicked and perverse generation in which we live. And Father, we do this as a testimony to the onlooking world that you will soon return. And we will do this until you come back.
Thank you for this time that we have this morning. Thank you for your invitation to the table, for providing us the wedding garment, the robe of righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is that that makes us fit to sit at your table. We rejoice in that this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.